Hey everybody, Chris Fafalius here. If you enjoy One Hit Thunder, which I'm assuming you do considering you're listening to it right now, I want to tell you about another great music podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. It's called Riffs on Riffs. On this season of Riffs on Riffs, hosts Toby Braswell and Joe Watson are breaking down one iconic pop song each week. Everything from Taylor Swift's Cruel Summer to Journey's Don't Stop Believin' to Naughty by Nature's OPP. Each week, they crack open the song, trace its history, decode those cryptic lyrics, and unearth the hidden gems in its musical DNA. Not only do they dive into the song's history, lyrics, and impact, they also go down some fun and oftentimes hilarious rabbit holes. So yeah, if you're a fan of One Hit Thunder, I think you'll also enjoy Riffs on Riffs. So go hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Hi, Geekscapists. The Geekscape podfather, Jonathan, here. In May, we lost one of our own, longtime Geekscapist Christopher Ellis, who was a friend and a part of our geek community from the very beginning. Chris even met his wife, Sarah, through our podcast, and their 2015 wedding seemed like a giant Geekscape party. Chris's final weeks battling in the hospital shed light on a huge national problem. The COVID pandemic has almost completely depleted our national and local blood banks. These supplies are used by thousands of hospitals to provide life-saving treatments to patients or to buy enough time for loved ones just to say goodbye. So for the next month and beyond, we're going to do it big in Chris's memory and do some good in the process. We're throwing a blood drive. Visit www.aabb.org to find a donation center near you or visit other blood and platelet donation centers like the Red Cross. And let's make things interesting. For the next month, take a selfie of yourself donating with the hashtag GeekscapeGives and tag your favorite Geekscape podcast. We'll pick some charitable Geekscapists to send prizes to, and the podcast that gets mentioned the most will also get some cool rewards. I should actually cancel the podcast that gets mentioned the least. Can I do that? Whatever. The point is, go out there and donate some blood, tag a selfie of yourself doing it with the hashtag GeekscapeGives, and get others to do the same. We couldn't save our friend Chris, but we can do a whole lot of good in his name. Geekscape forever! This week, we're joined by Dishwalla bassist Scott Alexander, who tells us what it's like to be in a band with a massive hit. And more importantly, what it's like to hear your song featured on an episode of One Hit Thunder. He's not here to just talk about his massive hit, but also Tal Bachman and his massive hit single, She's So High. Did you know that Tal comes from Canadian music royalty and how many movies and TV shows this song appeared in? Just like Cleopatra, Joan of Arc, and Aphrodite, this week's episode is first class and fancy free, so stay tuned. All right, Scott, this is pretty exciting. This is the first time where someone that we discussed their band's song on our show is here after hearing. So the, I'm assuming <laughs> the first episode you ever heard of One Hit Thunder is when we talked about Counting Blue Cars, correct? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. I actually, yeah. when I saw the advertising uh, advertisement that was coming on, I kind of maybe... Maybe I listened to another one first and just mm. to get a vibe for you guys. And if you were going to rip us apart or how that was going <laughs> to pan out, because I, I think it was the one for player baby come back. OK, OK. Nice. We all love that song. Yes. Yeah. But he didn't get the thunder. Right. And so I was a little I was a little concerned that maybe it was going to go wrong on the Counting Blue Cars episode. But then uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, it all you know, it's very interesting about the Counting Blue Cars episode was what I remember now, I didn't, I was kind of dreading. I'm like, I'm not going to listen back. I may have said a few things <laughs> that may have been like, I don't know, offensive to someone listening, but I do know, and this is the honest to God truth. And this is not 
knowing that you or anyone in your band was going to hear that episode was that I liked the song way more by the time we finished the episode. I did too. Yeah. See, <laughs> once I learned, we learned about the song and like analyzed the lyrics. And exactly. I think that maybe sometimes for me, when God is mentioned in a song, I, t- I turn to like tune it out and not yeah. even think about it. Matt, that probably makes Matt like it better. <laughs> but when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, this song's like, this song's beautiful. This song's a way more. And so I was relieved when I remembered that part of it. And we gave you a thunder, right? It was, you was did. You gave around. us the thunder. And, and not only that, I mean, yes, with the reading of the lyrics, you know, <laughs> and going over it, I'm like, wow, this is really kind of poetic, you know, and um, there's a it lot is. of great imagery. And it, it kind of reminded me that the lyrics are pretty, pretty great in that song. But then not only that, Matt was like, you know, I don't know why this band didn't continue on like the second record was great in all honesty i was like driving or something and i was listening to the to you guys and matt's like you know there's this song called once in a while it, it kind of came out as a single i don't know why it happened it was just as catchy as kenny bucars or whatever you know and, and and matt really dug it and i was like matt's my new buddy because like that was like <laughs> i felt like that was like my baby and my contribution to that nice. that that record yeah. that was like one of the first songs i ever wrote it was something super personal and, to me and, and i legit love that song scott so i was dreading recording the dishwall episode knowing chris <laughs> I mean, like, I, oh man am i gonna be fighting this by myself <laughs> on this episode right. no i i don't no. think i wasn't i wasn't too harsh was i no. no, no, it was hilarious. I mean, it, you okay. guys were really funny. And yeah, there was some jabs as there's going to be, you know, and you got to remember, though, all these artists that you guys are covering, you know, to us, we're just trying to make music. And it's just like right. the marketing that came after the facts, most of the time, years after the fact, these after these songs were written is so beyond our control, you know, after touring and doing what we can do that's within our own control. You know, it's in the record company's hands how to market these things. And as we dig into Tal's song, you'll see a lot of like common (laughs) things, commonalities in between our signing and the choosing of the single and kind of what happened. But in our case, like, you know, that first record, County Bucars would not go away. The record, the the (laughs) radio programmers, it was like top you know, five recurrent airplay is what it's called for months and months and months after that single came out. And we tried coming out with Kenny, uh, Charlie Brown's parents, which was the song we were signed for. That song's awesome, by the way. A lot of people thought that that song was going to like bring it home. We came out with uh, Give as a single, which is like sort of a power ballad, 70s sounding power ballad that we did a video for. That kind of didn't work out. I loved Feeder. I know that never got released as a single, but I thought Feeder should have oh, been yeah. a single as Feeder well. Rocked, that yeah. song was fantastic. Live and stuff. That was one of my, one of my favorites. But we, we ran that course of the first record. Sorry if I'm going over this. It's just kind of like, no, 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 no. This like is fantastic. Sometimes your episodes, it's like, and we don't know what happened. And <laughs> no, week, this is great. You know, it's just like, yeah. yeah, seal it up. Let us know. No, and okay, we also, well, hey, at any rate, we yeah. we make this the second record that we put a lot of work into. We recorded it on our own in the hills above Santa Barbara, California, where we're all from. We built a studio up there. Basically, what happened was Soundgarden was on our label, right? After Super Unknown had a bunch of success, they went to A and M and they're like, "We just want to make this record on our own now." This this follow up to Super Unknown, and these dudes had no real studio engineering experience at all but AM gave him the recording budget up front instead of the way that it normally works where there's a producer's fee and recording you, you have a recording budget right well they just gave him the cash and um we went to AM we're like we want to do it like that give us the cash <laughs> so <Nice. laughs> so at any rate because two of the members of our band had previously owned studios and jim wood our keyboard player had worked in los angeles was an engineer and we we'd had some years under our belt and some success at that point so we did the same thing we we flew in this producer from england which was so totally awesome but maybe a mistake in the end too because producers from england kind of don't care about like american radio play and what's going to be feasible in different formats and they're, they're not cognizant of it they kind of like let's just make a s- trippy record you know <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> so we got this guy that had just done elastica and ride and a bunch of mm. uh, bands that we kind of liked over there in england and we brought him to santa barbara california did this record that we 
we really loved. What happened was we made this record and then we got the announcement. They already knew it was in the pike, but that A&M and all its subsidiaries under Polygram were going to be sold to Universal Vivendi. And there was going to be a major corporate takeover and we got to get this record done. Mm. I was like, can't we just delay it till a better time? They're like, it might not come out. So we want to just do it and put it out. I remember being at the studio the day. um, Toad the Wet Sprocket is also from Santa Barbara, where we're from. We grew up. That's that's kind of the band that I kind of idolized as a little freshman in high school. Right. Because. Glenn Phillips, the singer, is a, a junior. You know, he's just a few years, a couple of years older than me. He's in this band that's got a record deal. And they had some, dude, they had some good songs. Something's Always Wrong is oh, one that comes to me all yeah. the time. It's just a really great radio song. Absolutely. And their two records before, they they released two records independently, got a lot of college radio play. And then when they signed to Columbia, Columbia re released those two albums under, under Columbia, which helped fulfill their deal there. But at any rate, I was up at the studio and Toad is recording in our studio and it's the hottest summer on record of 1998 was like the hottest summer we we'd had on earth in the united i don't know if it was on earth but at that point it was extremely hot there's no air conditioning toad is in a bad bad way like they're not getting along (laughs) and i come up the driveway to the studio i'm like guess what number one most added this week at alternative radio or rock radio whatever it was once in a while our first single off that second record it looked like it had legs, like it was going to take off. And we were just so ecstatic. And the Toad guys were just like, right on. Congratulations. That's so awesome. And then it's sort of like it just didn't have any financial backing. And it just sort of like just trickled away, you know, rather quickly without the label support. So it looked like radio had belief in it, but then the label wasn't really there to support it. And that was the end of it. We just kind of toured for about a year. And, and then we, we fall into the, the 1999 Tal Bachman year. So that's a segue. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But real quick, before we get into Tal Bachman, I got to say in the past week, I've been at the grocery oh, no. store shopping for groceries and counting blue cars was on over right. the loudspeaker. And I know you have to still experience that all the time, right? Yeah, all the time. You know, Home Depot or yeah. Lowe's. It or has whatever. to be a good feeling though, cool. right? It's pretty cool. I, you know, I kind of look around at people and it, it's just a trip. You know, it's a sort of an out-of-body experience at this point, you know, because it's been so many years. But uh, I live in a market that has a really good AAA radio station here. And so they play the acoustic version like almost every day. And you know, we've got a couple of these stations that don't have DJs, which is kind of weird, but they they play County Bucars probably every day, too. And it's just it's it's bizarre. But, you know, <laughs> it's awesome, man. You you made you made a, a mark and a big a big yeah. mark on music. You know, I, that song was so gigantic and still to this day, it's what we all strive for. And, and you know, I don't know. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, Congratulations you. on that. And thanks for being a good sport about us, about our any jabs we made in our episode. Thanks for being a good sport about it. I, you know what? It's always it's going to be one more hit than Chris ever had. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Tal Bachman. We get into Tal Bachman now. So did you know Tal personally? I, I didn't. Or do Back you? Back in the day, you know. I guess to set the stage here, and you know, I don't know where you guys were at in 1999. I think you guys are probably maybe 10 years younger than me. I was a freshman in college in 99. I was uh, in eighth grade. So, oh, right, so. right on. So, but you were into music <laughs> at that point. I got into music and my life prior to my cousin lending me Green Day Dookie was yeah. only what was in my parents' car. And then like that was just what at a young age, the alternative boom was happening. And yep. I just was like glued to MTV and like the alternative radio station from like up until the point when alternative radio no longer existed in Philadelphia. <laughs> like I was just listening to it, loving it. I was one of those people and I've talked about it with Chris. Like the thing that drove me to want to do a show like this is that I have always been an album guy. It's great if someone has a good single, but like I want to listen to that rest of the record and find any other hidden gems and I want to like be able to put in any album and sing along with it from front to back. So yeah, like that was just what a like the 90s was such a prime time to find these really great albums. Right. Uh, and sometimes by bands that didn't, like you said, didn't have the label backing to be something big. And I remember She's So High coming out. This was like right around that same time as Teenage Dirtbag 
like the song was inex- inescapable. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. It was Absolutely. always around. Were, were you a fan of Tal Bachman? Is that why you chose this? What, what was your reason for choosing this one? Yeah. You know, a lot of it with these songs is kind of where you were at at that point in time when these songs came on the radio. In 1999, as I was saying before, like Dishwall is sort of struggling, right? We're um, in the midst of this corporate label takeover thing that happened AM dropped like a hundred bands and they they only kept Cheryl Crow, Blues Traveler, Sting, Soundgarden, us, and the Gin Blossoms. And they took all of us and they stuck us on Interscope. And I don't know like what the vibe was on Interscope at that point, but new metal had just like that was the thing in 1999. And all of a sudden like alternative radio landscape had changed so much that I wasn't really identifying with a whole lot on alternatives so much anymore. And that was the case with a lot of us from before. And something I hadn't really thought about much was that like also like a lot of female demographic was totally displaced when Limp Bizkit and Corn and all this stuff. Like, yeah, there's a lot of rocker chicks that like that stuff, but it wasn't Alanis and it wasn't like Sarah McLaughlin on alternative radio, like the Lilith Fair you know, vibe before. So things had changed a lot. And so when Tal came out, it was like, oh, okay, this is pop rock. This is where, this is the direction pop rock is going. And we're on the cusp of Coldplay and Travis and, you know, still Radiohead, but things are getting lighter and they're not being featured on alternative radio anymore. Anyway, I just sort of identified, I identified with that particular song because I heard something in it that I loved from my youth, which was like a lot of electric light orchestra because I loved ELO when I was a little kid. Like I was raised by a single mom in the hippie era in Santa Barbara, California, single mom. We had a Volkswagen bug with an eight track tape deck in it. Right. And I just loved this out of the blue ELO record that I played nonstop. When I heard Tal, it was like, Oh, yeah, his voice and the Lennon-isms and the pop sensibility that he had brought a lot of that sort of not so much 60s, but more 70s kind of influence into his writing that I just really dug. You could hear, I could hear a version of this by like Cat Stevens. You know what I mean? Like it had that like 70s singer-songwriter vibe when I was revisiting it, when I was reading the lyrics. It's ironic because he had a song on the American Pie, one of the American Pie soundtracks, which obviously also did Dishwalla. So there's an element of his song that makes me think of the song Laid by James a little bit. Like it feels like those are kind of contemporary songs. And then it was in the movie Loser with Jason Biggs. Tal Bachman and Jason Biggs are like just hand in hand, apparently. But also in that movie soundtrack was Michael Penn's Someone to Dance With. And I feel like all three of those songs sit in this very similar like 90s singer songwriter. uh, Shout out to one of Chris's favorite uh, (laughs) favorites. Sean Mullins, I feel like would fall into this category, too. Like that guy with an acoustic guitar, which I think you're right, was almost this direct response to the fact that rock radio was like Godsmack and disturbed and limp biscuit at that time. yeah it, you want to have a music career but you're not capable of that you don't have that in you so what can you do okay well i'm just gonna go just balls to the wall 70s songwriter and do what i do best and it worked for him you know and it worked for yeah. a few guys that found a place because they actually they had the talent you know and when you listen to Tal's whole record, that debut record, the whole entire record the from start to finish is so solid. It's right. just like every single song. And there is like that Cat Stevens thing that you brought up. There's a track on there that, I mean, it sounds like more like Jim Croce or something like that, but it's totally yeah. 70s and the Wurlitzer. And there's, there's just a lot of 70s elements to it that I love. I had no clue until doing research because I was just like, Bachman's a pretty, you know, I don't think it's like an unreasonable last name. Then to realize, oh, he's related to the the members of the Guess Who and the Bachman Turner Overdrive. That's probably got a little bit of the influence on a 70s throwback sound as well as if you grew up with family members that are playing in those bands. Yeah, 
you you probably are going to have a little bit of 70s influence in your songwriting. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, in his defense, I will say he was very smart about it. In case the listeners don't know, yeah, Ro- Randy Bachman was like, he's basically rock royalty worldwide. But really in Canada, the Guess Who was really the first rock band to break worldwide and you know american woman these eyes these These eyes eyes. these eyes is a jam so many hits that are on the oldies stations today are are the guess who and and so um his dad is really kind of royalty up there based on that and then 70s come around he's got bachman turner overdrive bto you ain't seen nothing yet. Taking care of business. Yeah, but but that, that, that's his course. uncle, though. Wait, so that's his. That's his uncle. That, that's yeah. His, so he has a dad and uncle who are both. That's right. Part of very big. The crazy thing about about BTO is like their songs are like such big songs that they like crossed over into like they're almost like standards like taking like <laughs> taking care of business and you ain't seen nothing yet. Those are like songs that like kids would sing in a mighty ducks movie or something like that those mo- yeah. those songs are just beyond hits they're like everybody knows those songs and so it's omnipresent yeah absolutely yeah, yeah yeah this guy had a definite leg up in that way and but to the song itself she's so high that falsetto melody of that chorus i mean i think i was inclined to think that this style in this song was kind of lame but then i secretly liked it <laughs> i think i i liked i liked this song even though the style was very adult contemporary and this was yeah. in my punkest of phases <laughs> of my life <laughs> but yet i i don't remember at any point not liking this song i think even this was definitely i don't know at the time what i would have called a guilty pleasure but now i would say like oh there's no such thing as guilty pleasure i like everything right either you like it or you don't yeah but yeah yeah, this song it it was kind of hard not to like that melody it was just too too crazy catchy and according to i never thought about this until i re-listened the song after reading this but according to an interview i saw with tal bachman he said one of the biggest influences on the sound of the song was cheryl crow's if it makes you happy and I kind of hear that. I mean, it, it's the same chords. Is basically, I mean, I think he the primarily the chorus. You know, he said he um, he was in a mall and he'd heard um, "If It Makes You Happy" and he's like, "Oh wow!" And he had already written "If You Sleep." So "If You Sleep" was the song that. Okay, w- let's rewind just a little bit here. So back to the Randy Bachman thing, he didn't get a record deal based on his dad. A lot of people think that that's just kind of how it works when you've got a dad in the industry and it couldn't be further from the truth. And so in his case, he went to every label in Canada and was rejected really? and the U.S. He just went all yeah. over the place um, with his demos and was rejected. And ultimately what happened was he did get his demo tapes submitted to someone in L.A. that fell in love with it sent it to EMI Publishing in New York. He ended up getting a publishing deal first. The publishing deal, in turn, got him the record deal, but She's So High wasn't wasn't even on there yet. So I have a question about that, and I feel like you might be one of the best people to answer this because you've been in the music industry for so long. But literally this week, I rewatched the Harry Nielsen documentary, Who is Harry Nielsen and Why is Everybody Talking About Him? And they mentioned that he also got signed as a public like, a publishing deal first, in that sense, I guess when you get signed to a publishing deal, if I'm understanding it correctly, the idea is we don't think that you'll be a musician, but we think that you write songs that bigger bands would be interested in purchasing, essentially, right? Is that like a, or am I completely off with that? In Nilsson's case back in the day, yeah, that was that was the way it worked. But fast forward okay. into, into modern times, no, it was just common that getting a publishing deal first and it it might be the case but really they're they're thinking you're gonna be going somewhere with these songs so okay i I think absolutely i could see being either way with him like like i could see them taking his songs and shopping it to another band and being like hey dishwalla this guy wrote this great song she's so high you interested in putting it on your next record i tell you 1999 we would have taken it man I mean, it was a little poppy for us, but in all honesty, we were kind of struggling. We were in between labels, and um, before we got picked up again by an independent label, I remember talking to our A&R person at Interscope, who was had no point being, you know, 
it was Tom Brokaw's daughter, Andy Brokaw, that just like got a job because she wanted, she liked records or something. And, you know, it's just like, <laughs> at any rate, but, you know, we were, I was looking to get us hooked up with the writers for Smash Mouth with Greg Camp, you know, and, oh, and nice. stuff. You know, we were just, yeah, we were, we were kind of having a rough time there. But yeah, Tal would have been perfect to do something like that. But no, he got a record deal. If You Sleep had already been written. That was the, really the song that got him the record deal. She's So High was written basically, I mean, it wasn't written as it, but it was released as a setup single. So it was just supposed to like get his name out there, get the word out a little bit. It was supposed to be a minor hit before we really going to bring it on home with If You Sleep. The Dish Wallace scenario happened with Counting the Cars. It was just like the song wouldn't go away for months and months and months. The song wouldn't go away. They came out with If You Sleep. He made a video for it is super 90s it just it charted you know i did well you know it looks like it did better in some european countries and stuff but it just didn't didn't pan out but this song is still around this is another one that you're still gonna hear at the gas station at the supermarket wherever this song has legs it has staying power you know it's it's credit to being it's an easy listen and it's catchy and I got to talk about another from from a songwriting yep. part of this song is the Cleopatra Joan of Arc Aphrodite part that you I gotta think talk just, about that. Yeah, it just it just sticks in your head like he he shouts out these, uh, you know, famous women from the ages. And I don't really I mean, I guess he's saying that these are. These women are so high above him, Cleopatra and Joan of Arc. And, you know, supposedly he wrote this song about a time in high school he tried to bribe a girl to date his stepbrother, which sounds kind of like a weird version of uh, Can't Buy Me Love. Uh (laughs) And he said that during the conversation, he began feeling uncomfortable, but also in awe of her. And then wrote wrote this song about it at some point. Kind of a strange, kind of, kind of a strange thing. But there's something about this song And I don't know if I could put it in words. Maybe one of you guys can. But when Matt told me that Tal Bachman was Canadian, I was like, oh, yeah, of course he is. That totally makes sense. (laughs) Not only was he Canadian, he his first tour was the most Canadian tour that may have ever happened because he was the opening act for the Bare Naked Ladies and Brian Adams, which is just like the trifecta of 90s Canadian musicians. (laughs) I think those are separate. But yeah, as much as we talk about the chorus, this is another one of those songs where I think that the pre-chorus is just as earwormy because that, you know, the how can a guy like me ever really offer like that piece is just as catchy as the actual chorus building you into it. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. That, that melody, that da 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 da. <laughs> yeah, the, you very know, much and so. Back to the Aphrodite thing. The only other time I can remember um, Joan of Arc being in a song was Big Mouth Strikes Again by the Smiths. But really, like, when do you ever hear, you know, this stuff? And I think that's why. And he made it work, you know. And I heard him say something that, you know, it was sort of a homage to these 60s artists. I can't remember if it's Cream, you know, something about Ulysses. And I, I mean, when I think about, like, whatever, even Zeppelin or Jethro Tull and some of these sort of proggy bands from the 70s that could pull off you know dramatic that's a perfect word for it too man you don't get a lot of greek and roman mythology thrown into the middle of a song lyric (laughs) exactly and that's just i think that's totally coming from his classic roots and trying to weave that in some and here we you know you find yourself in 1999 going whoa what the heck you know like the first Dude. time hearing it, it sticks in your brain, and but it sounds great. You Calling know? it dramatic is perfect too, Scott, because there's something about it. And it's crazy because you brought up 1999. And yeah, of course, HBO, I got to watch it tonight, actually. HBO just released that Woodstock 99 documentary. So you think about this being the peak of Limp Biscuit and oh, Break Stuff yeah. and whatever. And then you have this song where the guy's almost singing in a theatrical sort of like something you'd hear like Aphrodite this like very over the (laughs) top dramatic so pop so easy listening so Gilmore Girls the other mind blow thing was like she's so high so the high word is the high note too Uh it's it's like another thing that's like so like classic Broadway show tune-y you know Lieber and Stoller 
you yeah. know, American songbook kind of ism in there. So, so on the nose for him to just go hi when he says hi. It's like, oh yeah, of course. Exactly. This, it's like what this song. Yeah, this song existed. It's one of those songs that just always existed. It's just Tal Bachman just channeled yes. it because it just needed to happen. But I think I didn't. I don't think I fully understood how big of a hit this actually was until researching it because the fact that in both Canada and the United States it was a multi-format top ten hit. So like. It was a top 10 hit on three different charts simultaneously in Canada and three different charts in the States simultaneously. And then it went on to win the BMI Song of the Year and two Juno Awards. Back like, up, Matt. I, back up, Matt. What three charts were these? I want to get, I don't know what they are. I want to try to guess which three charts okay. would this go on. Okay. So one of them has to be adult contemporary, right? So actually, sorry, with this United States, it was four charts that it hit. Canada it was Whoa, three. Okay, is one of them adult contemporary? Uh, it says adult, adult yeah. alternative. So we'll say that's about the okay. same. Okay, all right, <laughs> AC, all right. Yeah. Adult alternative, <laughs> as opposed to youth alternative. <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, one top forty. So mainstream right? top forty. Yep. Okay, so is pop its own? So chart? this is where like the Billboard charts, especially in the '90s, were completely insane, and I feel like they had a lot of charts that were like one step aside from the other it was the hot 100 the adult alternative the adult top 40 and then the mainstream top 40 so it was like oh, okay. number one on adult <laughs> top 40 but number seven on mainstream top 40s so the the youth claims wow. six higher spots than them i guess yeah okay i got you <laughs> and and you know i'm looking here too at what was going on so this song this song, it says it only peaked at number 14. Now, that's the Hot that's 100. That's on the Hot 100. It the was the top States. 20 on the Hot 100. Okay. I don't mean to say only, but I, I thought maybe it yeah, was the been highest a your higher. song peaked at, Chris. Hey, watch it. Watch <laughs> it. Scott had a had a way high, way bigger. So one out of the three of this conversation could talk shit on number 14. Yeah, but, you know, also, you know, a lot of these charts, like the, the industry doesn't a lot of time go off of the Billboard charts. It goes off of R&R, which is another... It's a competitor to Billboard, but it's a little bit more respected yeah. or something. It's the way that they culminate everything to get all the information together is a little bit more reliable. But yeah, multi-format hit. Yeah. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! We're going off of Billboard. It was number 14 on August 28th, 1999. At the time, my Pittsburgh, my fellow Pittsburgh native, who is also like a peer of mine, I think we're about the same age, Christine Aguilera, Jeannie Nabato, her first hit oh, was yeah. number one at that time. Big congrats to her. I mean, she could sing her ass off. I think she deserved it. Also in the charts at that time, Enrique Iglesias, Balimos was number two. LFO, Summer Girls at number three. Horrendous song. <laughs> I, I won't even I won't even hold back on that. That is a bad song. I'm sure I'm sure Matt had the album and could t and could tell you from front to back all about it. But that song really. I'm a big sucked. fan of LFO and Rich Cronin. <laughs> uh, but yeah, continue. <laughs> <laughs> okay smash mouth all-star okay that i don't know what to think about that one pearl jam last kiss sugar ray someday and red hot chili peppers scar tissue was on there at number 15 at the time the best selling single of that entire year was hit me baby one more time for britney spears <sighs> Gosh, such a weird time for pop rock that's when you yeah. say those these yeah. were these names it's just like oh yeah this is when i can remember you know when i was telling you guys we got thrown onto interscope and Jimmy Iovine, who is like one of the most respected producers of all time, doing Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen and stuff. But he was the he was the president of uh, Interscope Records at that time when they had Corn and Limp Bizkit and stuff. But he looked at 
basically he was in a marketing meeting with all these people and he says why are all these rock bands why are why are they all over 30 making music for 15 year olds and it was like right mm. about that time where all of a sudden it like Eminem and Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and LFO and the Macarena and, you know, all this stuff, it, everything went like pop came back all of a sudden. So pop returned right. and alternative turned to new metal. And all of a sudden Dishwalla and Tal Bachman and the Wallflowers and we're just going, whoa, man, like, where do we go? We've got AAA <laughs> and hot AC now. Like, that's all we're left with. And right. these formats don't sell records. Alternative sells records and pop sells records. And so all of a sudden the the what was the alternative rock like you know a, a good here's the thing i mean a lot of us bands like verve pipe dishwalla live that were marketed alternative were really pop rock bands when you get down to it i mean there was an interviewer i, I can remember at one point you know like a local paper were coming in we're gonna do a show we pick up the local paper to see what the advertising looks like for our show or something then they're like this interview this people this writer's like ripping us a new one comparing us to journey and stuff and trickster and it was just like trying to come up but i thought about it i was like wow well we i guess it kind of is almost journey for the 90s you know it's yeah. just like this is oh yeah we're <laughs> we are a pop rock band in this decade and yeah we're trying to write arena hits and i guess that's what it is you know and there's and there's not ba- it's not a bad thing to try to write catchy relatable music that you want to sing along to and that appeals to people i think regardless of what genre you fall into whether it's alternative or punk rock or whatever it happens to be for the most part unless you're frank zappa or something you're trying to write music that people like and appeals to people and has a pop sensibility so i i mean i wouldn't take the journey thing as like i didn't either and you know i think we're all trying to do that uh, yeah the journey thing i didn't at all my my friend right. made a comment around this time that has always stuck with me where he was talking about how he hated the terminology of alternative rock. And he's like, look, like when Nirvana came out, yes, it was an alternative to the rock music <laughs> that was on. But he's like, but now we're just labeling any rock band as alternative rock. What are they the alternative of? They sound like all the same bands at this point. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, right. no, that's fair. Like at a certain point when all of the radio sounds the same, how is it alternative to anything at that point? It's just pop rock. Just call it what it is. Right. And own it. Absolutely. <laughs> it's because it came out of that's an era, point. you know, the decade before, you know, was really kind of like. When I was coming up and I was into The Cure and Love and Rockets and Joy Division, New Order, and kind of like all these bands that were coming out of England that were really kind of creative and moving things along, there was only a couple what was alternative stations in the United States. You know, there was K-Rock in Los Angeles and you had um, HFS in in Boston and, you know, uh, there was another one up in New York and uh, Q101 Chicago. But there was just like, there wasn't really like... You, unless it was college radio, you couldn't know about these new bands that were happening. We didn't have a name for that music because it was no longer New Wave, which was sort of like late 70s into the early 80s. And then punk didn't really fit a lot of it didn't fit. I don't even think Nirvana or the Minutemen or like a lot of these sort of like harder bands at that point. Punk didn't really fit either. There wasn't really a name for it. And so the writers and radio in the the industry needs to put names on things and that's how grunge grunge wasn't something invented by people in seattle i'm sorry you know yeah nobody called themselves a grunge (laughs) band that would just be the stupidest (laughs) thing no i don't think so we're out changing we are a grunge band you know it's just like nobody (laughs) ever likes those blanket generalization terms that they're like no emo band liked being called an emo band no uh pop punk band like being called a pop punk band you said something scott you touched on something that is very much why i don't like that term you said something that jimmy Iovine said like why are 30 year olds writing songs for 15 year olds is you saw so much of that it's like you guys are full grown adults and you're acting like you're freshmen in high school and writing songs about that. It wasn't necessarily the style. Like, you know, I love where it came from. I I grew up on punk rock and I like melody and 
all that, but it was just like the subject matter and the style got so like some of my least favorite stuff, even though my band is in that world. I just, I'm like, when people say that word, it like, Oh, you know, it's, it would kind of like along what you're saying. Do you think that like the grunge bands liked being called grunge? They didn't, you know, I can remember seeing a, an MTV interview with Kurt Cobain back in the day. And like, they're sitting by a river or something like that. And the, he's Kurt smoking a cigarette, you know, and he's just, and the, and the interviewer says like, how does it feel to be a grunge band or something like that? And he's just like, <laughs> I thought it was a new waiver <laughs> and I was just like, Oh my gosh, like I, I'm with you. I'm like a new waiver. And we're just kind of stuck in this weird world where you corporate is putting names on things. And, you know, we're really more influenced yeah. by the eighties, not so much like what's going on right now. You know, did Dishwalla ever get hit with one of my favorite kind of non nonsense genre terms of were you considered a post grunge band at any point during your uh, your run? I remember that was a big like felt like any band on alternative radio from like 96 to 98. They're like Silverchair, Bush, they're post grunge. I think we we dodged that a little bit just because we weren't <laughs> the Nixons and Seven Mary Three and all these bands that had an Eddie Vedder sounding vocalist, you know, mm. or, you know, kind of sounding right. singer to it marble mouth marble. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, i mean jr did throw a little bit of that in there you know but um <laughs> for the most part we we kind of dodged it and kenny mukars is such a weird sounding song like where it was coming from <laughs> like you know we it was almost a bit more 80s than it was 90s but it worked and right. i can remember the day that you know the guitar player and i were kind of working out the chords to this song and we're in our rehearsal studio and we were actually trying to play a song by a band called catherine wheel and that had a record called chrome oh, i remember that band so we were trying to play this this tune by catherine wheel we were trying to figure out the chords and it just it essentially turned into another song and and there was a lot of bands that were kind of chasing that Catherine Wheel sound, Failure being another one, and where it was sort of a, mm -hmm. a dissonant kind of sound where the bass is going against the the chords that the we're not I'm not playing the roots of the chord necessarily. Exactly. It, anyway, it yeah. just it, it sounded different, you know. And so I think we dodged a bit of this grunge type of thing as a result. I'm not sure. Right. Plus, we were just poppier. Yeah, I wouldn't have put you in that realm either. Hey, I heard the first time, hey, Scott, in 2019, before the pandemic hit, one of the last tours that my band did is we did the Jim Blossoms tour, the New Miserable Experience tour. We were like the, oh, right the opening on. band on that tour, which was amazing. I yeah. love that band. Freaking love that band. And I had never heard before that tour the term jangle pop. I didn't know jangle pop was a oh, genre. Yeah. It's not really a genre, but like when you don't know how to like address that sound, it just I think power pop is maybe a more applicable term to a lot of these what we called punk pop punk, really. You know, is fast. I like I that. love I, power pop as a genre yeah. name. Yeah, I like that too. I I I tell I've used that to like if someone if I'm trying to give someone a broad generalization of what my band sounds like, power pop, that doesn't sound as bad. You know, I don't know. Something about pop punk or calling it kind of sometimes feel bad calling ourselves punk even even though we're influenced by the sonic stylings of punk it's not like we're railing against the government i do that on my own <laughs> <Right>. time <laughs> i do that on my own time not not too much in our music but the i think that's that's the thing you know there the the original crew of you know the sex pistols or the not so much the ramones but you know there was a lot of railing against the government especially in like you know the way the times were on the the West Coast, you know, I'm from Santa Barbara and we had, you know, first there was this band called RK, RKL and RKL kind of yeah. like, yeah, rich kids yeah, on LSD, uh, you know, Love so it. RKL influenced Lad, Lagwagon and we got, you know, um, yeah. all these bands, you know, Sugar Cult later on and, you know, and, you know, no use for a name. We got Chris Shiflett and then we got Scott Shiflett and Face to Face yeah. and all these people kind of grew out of going to see RKL play when they were kids, you know, and they all sort of grew up together and it was just sort of a scene, but it was pretty angry, you know, it was pretty, pretty gnarly. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it wasn't more like, I'd say the Buzzcocks, which I would say is a pop punk band, but just in the late seventies, you know, mm. and the green day that came later right. and then blink One Eighty Two and all the bands that sounded like that were kind of more disciples of the Buzzcocks. I think descendants are the band that I think of when it comes to like what power sure. pop is as far as like how, how I interpret it is like, 
yeah, it was it was melodic, interesting musically and relatable, you know, had the love songs, had that sort of things. And it wasn't necessarily all about, yeah. you know, the government and stuff where where punk ridge. I think any 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 title of a genre where it sort of like discredits like the content and how good these artists actually were, whether it's grunge <laughs> or pop punk or right. whatever it is. I think that's what pisses artists off mm-hmm. is like, you know what? There's some legit yeah. talent and, you know, incredible songs in there and. We're just sort of like discrediting it and throw, lumping it all together. Right. Lumping it all together is the best way to put it, too, because it's like basically most bands who are frustrated by being pigeonholed or whatever generalized. It's basically they just want to be like, yeah, we're a band. Yeah. We're, we're a just music, trying to be we're a, a band. Music make band. Music. We make music. Right. Bands and vans. <laughs> that's that's this. That is a, a very good. Yeah. We're a band in a van. Like we 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 write songs from the heart. We go out and play them. You know, Dishwalla would fit in there. I don't know if you guys were in a van or a bus at that. I, I'm sure by the time Counting Blue Cars. No, came we out, were, were in still bus, in but, the darn van uh, and they made us stay in the van oh. for way too long. And it was a drag because we were label mates with Tonic. And Tonic was like, van, like, screw that. We They got a van. They toured it for like a month, you know, and then they're like, give us the bus. We don't yeah. care. Well, because like <laughs> I remember Emerson saying to me, he's just like, either this thing flies and it's got legs and we financially do OK or it doesn't. And we go home and we're hey, just going to just give us like, the bus. It could have been way worse right. knowing the 90s and how marketing was. They could have made you just go on tour in multiple blue cars. Yeah. Hey, bringing it back around to Tal, to, to Tal Bachman and what he's been up up to since his hit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, apparently in 2004, he decided to take a 15-year break from music. Is that right? So that so Aeroplane yeah. and the track that's on uh, yeah. American Pie that's around 04? Yeah. So here's the thing that's really weird about this. That's his second album, which already came out five years after the first album, which I feel like is sometimes a huge death sentence to a musician with that long of a break. But it came out in Canada in 2004, and then it didn't come out in the United States until two years after Mm. uh, in 2006. I wish I would have asked him what the story was there. You know, I really wish I had talked to him a little bit about like I've I've never really seen or, or heard him talk much about what went wrong. Why didn't the why didn't the record label just go boom and do another record right after and why that lag was there well it seems like Um, he was very busy creating children (laughs) he had eight he had eight kids from the time he was in his early 20s so that that may have distracted him a little bit from the music he then became a rugby player and a political commentator (laughs) and well he grew up playing rugby i know and you know yeah he did continue to play through all that stay in shape i think it was more of a club team kind of thing but yeah i mean he's freaking gnarly yeah i saw at one point hey talk about still being relevant to young people in recent years you know uh, aside from the fact that the song has stuck around now this was in canada this was i think it was vancouver where this video is from but mm-hmm. i saw a video of taylor swift playing in vancouver bringing him out to play yeah. she's so high together and the whole arena or whatever it was stadium singing along to it so obviously that song has uh still still makes an impact among young people in recent years you know it didn't just go away and be listened to by 50 year old moms or something it stuck around you know so that's to its credit you know and to his credit absolutely and i think i think taylor wouldn't have made that whole thing happen if she didn't love the song yeah you know and how comfortable bringing him onto her stage i mean i thought that spoke volumes right but to see it him up there and that crowd going crazy like that was just like oh yeah i mean this is yeah still like touches something in people you know it's really cool undeniable so here's my favorite though of all the stuff that i found on his wiki page and i wish that i had done a deeper dive to research more about this but in 2012 he found out that the cactus club cafe was no longer serving key lime pie and spearheaded (laughs) a campaign to get it added back to the menu and now i'm sitting here and i'm like did he weird Al she's so high to be key lime pie? Because oh. if not, uh, he missed a great opportunity right there. Where's the Cactus Club Cafe? I don't even know where that is. Is that the- it's in Vancouver? It was a okay. Vancouver location. Right. Sometimes right. sometimes people go into wiki pages, obviously, and write extremely weird stuff that could have been written by a waitress or something that he freaked out on or who knows 
you know, but there's some weird crap on our wiki pages that is just like flat out just not true. You know, so, yeah. his wiki knows. page is pretty sparse. And I think that that's why I like it so much is that there's not a lot of information yeah. on it. It's a big but the gap, key lime yeah. pie incident is definitely on there. Before we make our verdict on if this is thunder or a blunder, there's one more couple more little weird facts about this. Four years after the song came out, a Norwegian artist named Kurt Nielsen, not familiar with him. I'm not. I don't know if you guys are big Kurt Nielsen fans, but he covered this song covered she's so high and it became norway's best-selling single ever <laughs> ever it's as this a result kurt nielsen cover so that thing that's as a result of american idol he not only won american idol in norway but he won american idol or sorry not american idol i guess it's like norwegian idol or whatever it is but yeah. he, he won <laughs> he won idol worldwide and that song was performed performed i guess like several times over the course of like how many shows there was and stuff so anyway that was a huge boon for uh tal's ascap checks or, or excuse me bmi checks you know the royal the royalties that he was able to get from that must have been it's gotta be how much does it probably suck to have the best selling single in your country's history and you didn't write the song, so you're probably not getting nearly as much of a I know, cut right? of having like the I didn't even song. think about that on his end. Like <laughs> this kid's got the biggest selling single of all time, and Tal's getting all the royalties. So the only the only other thing that I wanted to to give a weird shout out to is his return to music in 2019. And I love this. He came out under the stage name Ian Starglow, and his Debut album under that name is called Ian Starglow's Greatest Hits Volume 1. That's some serious Garth Brooks, Chris Gaines power right there. And I kind of love it. I didn't know about <laughs> like, that fact. That's yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Tal was telling me a little bit about that. And what that was, was he was he'd written a screenplay, I guess, and basically had written a pilot. And I think maybe they shot the pilot, but he he's basically created a character, this this character, Ian Starglow, that's this sort of like British rock star from the 70s. And uh, they they built this show around him and he was trying to sell. That is exactly show. the Chris Gaines situation. That's hysterical. Yeah. to me. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that's the Chris Gaines thing. It was like Garth Brooks was going to make a movie about a rock musician named Chris Gaines. I don't that think was going to like on it. I think he's just, you know, still probably trying to, you know, find someone that's interested in doing that. But, you know, <laughs> I would I would watch either one of those. I think that that's awesome to like create a fictional character, make a greatest hits album for this fictional character and then do like a movie or documentary about like a 20 year span in this mm -hmm. character's career. That's so that's so fun and smart. I love it. Yeah, he <laughs> he's a brilliant guy. I mean, he's just like. I don't know what the dude's IQ is, but Tal is just sort of like, I just think about the life that this guy has lived. You know, it's just, it kind of blows me away that he's the son of this massive Canadian rock star that is living in like a Volkswagen bus with a, his brothers and sisters just dirt poor. And then all of a sudden they're, they're living in this mansion outside of Seattle that he grew up in. And that house just recently sold. Like you can Google it, the Randy Bachman estate. It's like 30 acres. I mean, it's like, and you imagine little towel riding big wheels and around. It looks like freaking Graceland. It's just crazy. Oh, it's got a recording studio lot. in the house. It's massive. And it's where BTO did a lot of more, a lot of record, you know, recording and stuff in that house. The complications of, you know, probably having his dad gone, you know, a good portion of him growing up, you know, being active in a lot of different things. He majored in political science and stuff. So he's super sharp. And, you know, I, he's he's a concern. I know you guys are more on the liberal side of things, but, you know, he's a, he's a <laughs> political analyst that, you know, years ago he was on TV a lot more in Canada. But he does these Stein online pieces for Mark Stein and he's super his Twitter and his Facebook is way more political. He never he rarely talks about music unless it's pertains to like a show he's got coming up with his dad or something. Are you saying that he's conservative? Are you saying he's a conservative? Because <laughs> I, I, I looked I looked into it and I feel like Canadian conservative is a little bit different than like it is. what Thank it means you. in America. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a little less harsh. I, I think too. Also, hey, Scott, I got to challenge something you said a little bit earlier. Though. Yeah. You said earlier that, <laughs> you know, Tal's success had nothing to do with 
the fact that his dad was from the Guess Who and his uncle was from BTO. I would kind of I would kind of challenge that and say you have a little bit of a foot in the door. Uh, I think you're right. Your, I think you're right. In the yeah. in the U.S., he had a foot in the door, and that got him mm-hmm. listened to. But in Canada, it worked against him, and it was fun for A and R guys to say, "Right, Randy Bachman's kid's a singer." I just threw it right in the trash. You know, it's just like hmm. you know, like it's just like the, he just automatically by right. maybe not even really giving it a legitimate listen, just said no. I even think a foot in the door doesn't even necessarily have to mean, hey, this person got signed specifically because of blank, blank, and blank. But like, obviously, and this is coming from the the least musical of the three of us on this call, but like, if I had a demo, I wouldn't even know thing one about who to send it to to get it moving somewhere. So there has to at least be the slight advantage of being like, Hey, Dad, who should I send this demo to? <laughs> well, you know like, he got some direction. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know he got some good help. and and But, you know, Dad couldn't pull it together for him. And Canada, yeah. he, he's basically like, screw you, Canada. I'm going to, to the United States to figure this out. And the U.S. Yeah, didn't, yeah. didn't have all the stigma attached to his dad like it did up there. And you got to remember also, like, Jacob Dylan, you know, the, the Wallflowers yeah. did have a failed record before they had a record that, and they got dropped, you know? And so mm-hmm. maybe it got his foot in the door to get a record deal, but they made a record that went nowhere, essentially, and uh, built right. a new band and then and then essentially uh, signed a new deal and they had success. But And then another one I can remember, this kid, uh, Colby Calais, her dad produced yeah. like all of Fleetwood Fleetwood Mac's records. Ken Calais is like a bro of mine. Same thing with her. Like Ken couldn't really just walk her into Warner Brothers and get her a deal on Fleetwood Mac's label or something like that. She was singing in coffee yeah. houses and, you know, she was just a MySpace success. It was really what happened. Right. So it's not a guaranteed thing if you've got a parent in the industry. In fact, it could work against you. I feel that Jacob Dylan's music doesn't have a whole lot to do with his dad's acoustic songwriting of the early 60s no. i mean it it really doesn't and he made a point that even visually right. and the the aesthetic of the wallflowers is not going to be a hippy dippy kind of 60s ish vibe we're dressing in black we're going another direction and tal same thing like when i think of randy bachman i think of like pentatonic blues like american woman rock like you know can't yeah. ain't see nothing yet like i think straight ahead like power chords like tal's record is pretty i don't want to say complicated but you know there's a lot of beach boys there's a lot of 70s singer songwriters that it's musically a lot more dense and quarterly there's a lot more color going on than his dad's music it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with his dad's approach to things it's very different yeah and i think again with the 20 year separation there with both both jake dylan and tal like when I was a kid in middle school and those albums are dropping, I don't really know or care who Bob Dylan or the Guess Who is at that time. I just know that I really like this song. So, like, the fact that they're the kid of this, like, god of music means nothing to to the middle schooler or the <laughs> exactly. high schooler that's the buying you're it. trying to appeal to, to <laughs> buy that record. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, all right. So, we'll, we'll go. We got to go around. Scott, I, I, okay. I'm assuming I'm assuming you're giving Tao a thunder pass. Am, am I correct? Big time thunder pass. And, and not only for She's So High, but the whole entire record. Like, I would just encourage people to go back, get on Spotify and review this whole thing because it's freaking genius. The, the whole record, the whole all the way through is just absolutely beautiful. And putting it into today's landscape, it's just like such a breath of fresh air because of the way that I don't know. There's probably good rock music out there somewhere, but I'm kind of lost in it the last several years. So I don't know. Big time thunder for me. Gotcha. Matt? I mean, I listened to this song a lot as a kid. It's constantly popping up in the type of like 90s teen flicks that I revisit time and time again. So this is like a warm blanket song for me in general. So I'm, I'm going with thunder as well. So, Chris, are you going to make uh, it a three-way thunder? Or are you going to so, so, just... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> based, based on the fact that, yeah, even at the time when I may, may have thought I was too cool for something like this that was on the radio and so over-the-top pop music that I liked it then, that's where I, I would lean. But the fact that then he 
took a 15-year break from music and uh, became a conservative <laughs> political mm. commentator in Canada. I don't think that's so cool. <laughs> I don't think that's very I don't think that's very thunder of him, but the song is strong. <laughs> I I dug into his catalog a little bit more. I didn't like I, I listened to Aeroplane, I listened to a few other songs. I think this was like far and away the best song that I heard, but the other stuff was what was passable. And I, I think that I can also give this, I, I think I can make it a <laughs> passable. <laughs> I think I can, I can make it a three-way thunder here. I think, I think Tal, Tal did all right for himself. And, and especially considering this is the time he's releasing this song. This is a po- good point that, you know, Scott touched on earlier. This is at like the height of like Limp Biscuit and stuff. So if you can rise above the noise out there with a song like this, <laughs> I got it. Right. I got to give him props for that. So uh, yeah, I'll give it a thunder. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have anything worth promoting? The world's starting to open up again. Does Dishwalla, Dishwalla have anything on the horizon? Yeah, Dishwalla is really kind of big become the masters of just doing one-offs we fly out we get together a few times a year and do some shows now previous years we'd been touring a bit more but you know like last year was it last year no the year before i think we came out and we played out by you guys and we did this uh out by bethlehem steel which is like that's matt's neck of the woods it's outside it's out by exactly there's a park it's incredible they this old steel mill and they lit it up with lights and stuff and it's this massive structure and they they made the steel for the empire state building and the golden gate bridge there and and now it's just a concert venue and so we played there oh, that's awesome a couple years I'm ago but find a show there and go to it you <laughs> yeah cracker had played the year the week before us but yeah they're having really good shows out there but um yeah we love pennsylvania we, we you know we, we recorded pet your friends in conchahawken which is outside oh, that's philadelphia yeah, that's like 10 minutes from me that's where most of my family lives oh right so. on so we'd go to dinner in maniunk and we we had a a condo in king of prussia nice go to the mall and stuff on days off but that's where we tracked our first record because the phil nicolo the butcher brothers were there with studio four and that's they had done urge overkill and cypress hill and a bunch of stuff out there that we like so we that's we, awesome we had no clue about that yeah i'd never <laughs> been anywhere you know I grew up sort of poor in Santa Barbara, California. I'd never been anywhere. I'd never seen fall before coming to Pennsylvania. <laughs> and and so, uh, yeah, when we came out to make you the record. All, you get all the seasons for better or for worse out here. <laughs> it was so cool. I mean, we were just. Our winters and summers suck, but like the month and a half that it's either fall or spring, it's great. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Right on, you guys. Cool. Hey, thanks for coming on, Scott. This was uh, this was pretty exciting, and uh, thanks for uh, you know not being mad at me. I don't think I said anything bad <laughs> back in. No, back in and even episode. if you did, <laughs> you know you got to know too. Like you know, we're one of those bands that even our best bros, you know, are just like, dude, sick of that song, and you know, like we're not fans <laughs> of, you know, not really fans of our band, you know, and and it's funny how things work out. You know, I was in another band that I thought was going to get a record deal and was going that direction and the drummer for Dishwalla was also in that band and he kind of yanked me and pulled me into this this other thing that it wasn't called Dishwalla yet um, but you know yanked me into this other situation and it just started doing well really rapidly you know it was coming out of the 80s it was called Life Talking and those dudes just the material was just not going to work in in a post Nirvana world Mm -hmm. you know and we rewrote the material and the band was called Dish this is like before the internet, so we couldn't just Google to see if that name already existed for a band. Got a cease and desist letter from a band called Dish. Had to change yeah. the name, you know. And we threw that walla on there from a Wired magazine article. We saw these people pirating satellite television, and it was just supposed to be for like a couple gigs, and we were going to change the name, and you know, just it just stuck, and the band took off pretty quick. But you know, it's just funny how things work out, you know. Yeah, that's Hell awesome. yeah, man. Well, thanks again, man. Yeah. This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is hosted by Chris Fafalios of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah, and produced by Matt Kelly of Geekscape.net. Underneath me, you're hearing Heart of Gold off the Punchline B-Sides album, Night Lights. Visit punchline.com for merch, 
new music, and upcoming shows. If you have any interest in podcasting, visit WeKnowPodcasting.com for how Chris and I can make your show sound as professional as possible. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at OneHitThunderPodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. And tune in next week for another episode of One Hit Thunder. I don't know. Everyone has a podcast now. Well, not really. What is true is that, according to Nielsen statistics, 55% of the U.S. population, that's over 155 million people, have listened to a podcast, and 24% of the population, that's 68 million people, listen to podcasts weekly. And these numbers continue to trend upward. What's also true is that over 75% of all podcasts fade away after the first few episodes. It could be for a variety of reasons, lack of strong concept, poor production value, people not realizing how much time needs to be dedicated to it, or simply just not knowing how to get the word out about podcasts. That's where WeKnowPodcasting.com comes in. At WeKnowPodcasting.com, we have a combined 25 years of podcast experience, and we can help you achieve your podcasting goals. Whether you need help starting a new podcast or want to take your currently active podcast to the next level, we got you. From consultations to concept development, from theme music to editing, promotion, animation, graphics, you name it and we're here to help. Don't become another failed podcast statistic. Let us guide you and help your show become a success. Check out the website at WeKnowPodcasting.com. And even if you're on the fence, don't hesitate to reach out. We're friendly guys, we're passionate about pods, and we're here to help. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.